Coming up, we find out exactly what to expect when it comes to rising tides. If you're planning for the future and you're planning for your own particular local region, you probably want to over-prepare. And the 19th century geologist whose exploration of America mirrors today's climate debate. While he was exploring and discovering it, he also made some fundamental observations on human adoption to the climate of the arid lands of the United States. Plus, we dive beneath the waves in the Southern Ocean. It's like a blender down there. We'll find out why. You're listening to The Nature Podcast for the 19th of September, 2013. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. At the end of this month, the first part of the latest epic report from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, will be officially revealed. It's the bit about the physical science of climate change. A leaked draft of the report has been sloshing around for a while, but Nature heralds the official release with a series of articles about climate science. Take sea levels, for instance. It's clear by now that they're rising, or at least set to rise. But how much and how fast? The last IPCC report back in 2007 was slated for being too conservative in its forecasts. Now, with the next report in sight, scientists mostly agree on a significantly scarier outlook. Nicola Jones has digested the latest evidence into a feature, and Jeff Marsh gave her a call to hear more. What is the research community's view of the estimates of sea level rise set out in the 2007 IPCC report? So when the 2007 IPCC assessment came out, it had a quite low range for sea level rise in it. And the authors at the time admitted that that was because they couldn't tackle a big batch of the problem. They could put a number on how fast they expected glaciers to melt, for example, but they couldn't put a number on how fast they expected the Antarctic or Greenland to melt or even collapse catastrophically into the sea. And that's a potentially huge part of the problem. You know, if you look really far into the future, the amount of ice that's in Uh, the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets is enough to raise sea level theoretically by more than 65 meters. You know, and you can compare that to all the ice that's in the glaciers and ice caps is only about half a meter. So it was quite controversial and and they got a lot of flack for sounding too conservative back in 2007. And so why are we talking about this now? There's a new IPCC report due. That's right. So the first bit of the report that comes out is the state of the science. That's called Working Group 1, and that will come out in September. Some people have seen leaked versions, so we're pretty sure we know what it's going to say. And you're pretty sure that it's going to say significantly higher estimated rises in sea level? Yes. Well, what they've been able to do is finally put a number on uh, the potential collapse of the Antarctic and Greenland. So they're, they're able to quantify that now. And because they can stick those numbers into their projections, of course, the number has gone up to, I think, 97 centimetres by 2100. So just about nearly a metre. So the new report has given these much higher estimates of, of sea level rise, but they're not set in stone, are they? I mean, what are the remaining uncertainties? What a lot of people do is they use process-based models to estimate sea level rise. And what that means is that you look at all the different individual contributions to sea level rise, like the melting glaciers and the melting ice caps, and also the thermal expansion of the ocean water. So uh, as water gets warmer, it just physically takes up more space. So this is the kind of model that most people in the community have the most confidence in. But it's difficult, and the part of that that's most difficult is figuring out what's going to happen to the Antarctic ice sheet. 
And another thing that you mentioned was that there are uncertainties about how this pattern of sea level rise is going to vary across the globe. Well, that's right. So a lot of people think of sea level rise as, you know, adding water to a bathtub. You add more water to it when you melt the ice and the water level goes up. Well, that's all very well, but of course, it's not the same from place to place. And you get a really surprising amount of variability all around the world. Uh, One reason is the way that the, the ground is moving. So in some places, the earth is actually rising upwards because it's rebounding from having the ice that used to be on it during the last ice age melting away. That's happening in places like Alaska, which is actually rising in some places as much as three centimeters a year. And, you know, for comparison, uh, the ocean is rising at around three millimeters per year. So in Alaska, they're actually seeing a sea level drop in some places. Uh, You also have things like subsidence. You know, maybe in a river delta, there's a lot of sediment there that's very loosely packed, and that sediment can just compact more, and as a result, the ground sinks. Uh, You also have earthquakes, which can move the ground. And then you have the water side of the equation. So ocean currents and air pressure can shove water to one side of an ocean. So there are all these different kinds of effects. And one of the most strange ones is a gravitational effect. Places like Greenland and the Antarctic, because they hold so much ice, they're literally very, very massive bodies that actually gravitationally attract water towards them. If those bodies melt, then, of course, their mass decreases and that gravitational attraction goes down, which means a lot of the water will slop more towards the equator and away from the poles. It sounds like whilst our models of the processes have become more accurate, we now have this understanding of all these other uncertainties which could completely change the outcome. Well, they do change the outcome for individual places, and people acknowledge that. And, you know, it's true, people argue very emotionally about whether we're going to see 50 centimeters of sea level rise or a meter or two meters by 2100. But in some ways, the difference between those estimates kind of pale in comparison to a lot of other things, like the regional variability, uh, the fact that during a storm, you might see storm surges that really drive water up on your shore, a lot more than the difference between the half a meter or a meter projections by 2100. And also we have to remember that sea level doesn't stop rising in 2100. It does keep going. And, you know, you have to remember that you are going to eventually see that two meters of rise. It's just going to be a little bit later. So if you're planning for the future and you're planning for your own particular local region, you probably want to over-prepare for the kind of sea level rise that people are expecting globally. That was Nicola Jones talking to Jeff Marsh. You can read Nicola's feature at nature.com slash news. We'll be hearing about natural painkillers and Alzheimer's proteins in the research highlights a bit later on. But first, all hands on deck. For centuries, those sailing the sea between Antarctica and Cape Horn at the tip of South America have been in for a bumpy ride. The body of water is known as Drake Passage after its discoverer Francis Drake, and it's notorious for being one of the roughest stretches of water on Earth, with enormous waves and ferocious winds. Not even the most famous of explorers could escape the dreaded Drake Shake, as Charles Darwin found out when his ship the Beagle passed through on its way to the Pacific. Besides the serious and utter loss of time, and the necessary discomforts of the ship heavily pitching, and the miseries of constant wet and cold, 
I have scarcely for an hour been quite free from seasickness. Darwin survived the voyage, but what he might not have known is that these rough waves weren't just happening at the surface. In fact, thousands of metres below, there's some intense turbulent mixing. That's according to Andrew Watson from the University of Exeter in the UK. His team braved the rough seas to clear up confusion about how water is circulated, which matters for how much carbon dioxide the ocean can take up. Not only did they find out how strong a stomach they had, but they concluded that underwater mountains in Drake Passage have a hand to play in the ocean action higher up. I called Andrew. We started out by doing measurements in the North Atlantic, and we found the rates of mixing were very slow there. So we've been on a sort of quest to find out where the ocean mixes. We do know that the Southern Ocean is the place where most of the overturning of all the world's oceans occurs. But the Southern Ocean is presumably a big place and you wanted to find out exactly where all this mixing is going on. How did you do that? We did this by releasing a chemical tracer, which we can detect in very, very low quantities. We released it upstream of Drake Passage in the southeast Pacific and we then went on repeated cruises and measured that over a period of several years as that patch of tracer moved eastward in the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. And we found initially that it mixed very little when it was still upstream of Drake Passage, but as soon as it got into Drake Passage, it began to mix very quickly. Those boat trips, I can imagine, might have been quite rough. How was the experience? I wouldn't want to spend all my time at sea, but it's certainly been an interesting experience. Rather cold and wet, I imagine. Cold and wet, yeah, especially when you're handling the seawater, which is just about at the freezing point. So you found that the tracer was more dispersed in Drake Passage. Yeah. So what does this tell you about how the waters are mixing in that passage? Well, if you look at a geological map of the sea bottom there you see that in Great Passage itself, there are lots of mountains out on the sea bottom. So there are tectonic ridges, plate boundaries, and the largest current in the world, the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, circles the planet at that point, and it goes right the way to the bottom. So even the bottom waters are, are moving. And as that current goes across those mountains, waves that are internal to the ocean are generated and these can propagate quite some distance up through the water column and downstream and we think that it is those waves when they break that is causing the mixing. And what sort of impact is this having on its neighbouring oceans? Well, most of the overturning in the ocean occurs in the southern ocean. So this is the place where most of the water in the ocean, which of course is subsurface, it's where it last sees the atmosphere. So this is important for the climate because the place where the deep sea contacts the surface and where it last sees the surface before going into the deep sea can set the amount of carbon dioxide in the natural atmosphere. So is it possible to forecast what kind of effect this is going to have on the climate in years to come? It should be, once we know sufficient uh, about these processes. 
so what one needs for that, of course, is a climate model, uh, not just an atmospheric climate model, but an atmosphere plus ocean climate model. And one of the problems that such couple models have uh, up to now is that they don't know precisely where ocean mixing is occurring and what's causing it. So they tend to guess and will perhaps have you know, a constant ocean mixing everywhere. And our measurements pretty clearly show that that's very far from the truth. The mixing is anything but constant. It's located in specific hotspot areas. And can we link any of these results to the reputation of Drake Passage as a notoriously choppy piece of water? Only in the sense that it's a windy part of the world. The wind is responsible for the current, and the current ultimately, at least at the bottom, is responsible for this mixing. But not much of the mixing that's generated at the surface penetrates very far down. It's mostly the mixing that's generated at the bottom penetrating up. And the reason for that is because when you get into the surface, there's a strong stratification between the surface layer and what's immediately underneath it. And that damps out the turbulence, meaning that it can't propagate down so well. So under other circumstances, you could imagine that it might be glassy smooth at the surface. If you've got a big current running, you'll still get the mixing. That was Andrew Watson from the University of Exeter in the UK. Soon we'll be hearing how a 19th century environmental survey can still teach us a thing or two about climate policy today. But first, it's time for the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. The root bark of the African peach tree is used by locals to treat pain. Now, researchers have found the plant contains the same active ingredient as man-made painkillers. An international team collected extracts from the tree bark and sorted the compounds they found based on their mass and chemical makeup. Then they tested how well each group could relieve pain in mice. They discovered that an effective oily yellow compound was actually tramadol, a synthetic painkiller sold since the 1970s. The team believes it's the first time a widely prescribed man-made drug has been found in a plant at levels high enough to be clinically useful. Read more in Angevante Chemie. In Alzheimer's patients, proteins known as amyloid plaques build up in the brain. Now, it seems the structure of these fibres differs between patients. Researchers at the US National Institutes of Health extracted amyloid from the brains of two patients who had died from Alzheimer's. They grew it into fibres. Fibres from the same patient had the same structure. But the structures from the two patients were different. The team thinks some structures could affect how Alzheimer's develops. And if doctors could tell the difference between them, it could help them diagnose the different forms. Find that paper in Cell. Back to climate science now in this special IPCC-themed issue, because of course climate change is one of the greatest challenges of our time, but it's not the first time that environmental science has clashed with politics. In the 19th century, explorers and developers in the US were keen to exploit the newly prospected arid lands of the West. In the Science Corner, John Wesley Powell, geologist, keen to survey the region and analyse its resources before people moved in there in droves. In the Politics Corner, developers and politicians keen to strike out into new regions. Historian K. John Holmes has written about the parallels with modern climate change in a comment piece. Here's John with more on Powell and his scientific plot. Especially after the end of the U.S. Civil War, there was a tremendous optimism 
towards the arid lands of the United States. There's quotes that say it was, you know, this great pastoral region is filled with riches as it is with marvels. And so there was a, a tremendous optimism on the part of others that this area could sustain and could have a much bigger population. Powell, based on his observations, thought that the settlement of the arid lands of the United States, those lands west of about the 100th meridian, had fundamental issues in terms of their settlement. He felt that the resource base of the arid lands would reduce the amount of people that could go there as well as require a well-planned migration into the arid lands. So his idea was that they would have to have a basic scientific understanding of the resource base. And then he also thought that there also had to be some basic understanding of the economics, of the human side of the issues associated with the development of the arid lands. For those of us who have been... uh trying to find the leaked bits of the new IPCC report and uh, waiting for it to come out for years. This sounds quite familiar, the fact that you might need an evidence base and an understanding of the economics of an area before forging ahead with a plan. I really feel that the assessment that was done by Paul and his co-workers was really the first instance where, especially in the United States, an large-scale environmental issue, a climatic issue, was approached in this integrated fashion where you had the combination of science and of the, the scientific characteristics of the problem combined with the human elements of the problem to come up with what we now you know, believe are comprehensive approaches to these large-scale environmental issues like climatic change. You know, what his approach was, was basically the forerunner to what we see being done by the IPCC. Now, we don't know necessarily what will happen to the IPCC in years to come, but this is a historical tale you're telling us, and we do know what happened to Wesley Powell's plan. Powell's plan, it was kind of the first initial shot at putting some reality on the settlement of the arid land. At that time, when it hit the shelves or when it, it hit public knowledge, it was a time where there still was sufficient rainfall going on in the arid lands. People believed that Paul was being unusually pessimistic and, you know, putting a damper on this wonderful region. And then all of a sudden, when the droughts came again, as, as Paul predicted in the late 1880s, early 1890s, all of a sudden, Powell's plan came back to the forefront, and Congress came in and, and, and decided, well, we're going to stop the development of the arid lands. We're going to let the Powell survey go ahead. But within two years, that was quickly overturned. He actually lost his staff that was implementing and trying to get this plan. But even that wasn't the end of, of, of the issues. So it sounds like, you know, Powell got his way at some point, but as you say, it wasn't the end of the issues. I mean, what is there to be learnt from this episode for modern climate change, for scientists and for politicians? I mean, the parallels are real striking. You know, the arid lands debate extended over decades. Uh, You know, not only was there legislation passed in 1902 to address the water resources, so that was almost 30 years after Powell's initial plan, But then we had something called the Dust Bowl, these extreme environmental impacts um, in the 1930s that came back. And so there was another round of legislation associated with the air plants. So what it indicates to me is a couple of things. One, 
the first plan that comes out in terms of addressing a major climatic issue is probably not going to be the last one. It also showed how this issue of climate, these large-scale climatic issues are so complex that the issues tend to tend to be de- debated over decades-long period. You mentioned there the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Did freak weather events like this really have an impact then on how this how Powell's work was received? You know, we have all this scientific basis, but in the end, a lot of times the motivation to act may come from these rare catastrophic events such as droughts that really put the human cost of not dealing with climatic issues into stark um, the stark contrast for politicians and for the public. And, and, and so I quote a U.S. senator um, that noted in a debate when they had a dust storm that came into Washington, D.C. And, and coated the Capitol with dust, and he said that this dust storm was the most impressive lobbyist to ever come to the Capitol. And I, and I, and I think that really shows you what we believe the power of of some of these events are in terms of changing public perception. That was John Holmes at the U.S. National Research Council in Washington, D.C. Read his piece at nature.com slash nature. News time now and online news editor Davide Castelvecchi joins me in the studio. Davide, the first story you have for us is about whale earwax. Indeed. The interesting thing about earwax is that it grows like the rings of a tree. And so it stores all sorts of information about the environment in which the, the whale lived during, during its life. First of all, how, how do you go about extracting earwax from a whale? Well, you have to do it when it's dead because you wouldn't want to do it to a live whale. They don't really have openings on the outer ear. So um, this particular... Uh, sample was taken by a whale that was killed in a in a collision with a ship off the coast of California. And who's been investigating this? So these are environmental scientists in Texas, and they were interested in finding out if indeed earwax, whale earwax, could be used to trace environmental pollutants. And so they called up uh, a museum and they asked, do you happen to have a dead whale or body parts from a dead whale and do you happen to have saved the earwax and you you have to understand of course a, this we're talking about a blue whale it's the largest organism on earth and the the earwax that they collected was 24 centimeters long and it has information from all basically all 12 years of the whale's life this was an adult whale so in a sense, it's a time capsule of the whale's history, of the whale's life. Yes, exactly. And it recorded information about how the whale uh, was migrating. It has layers that you can read of different colors. And the color changes depending on whether the whale is feeding or migrating. And then it also has information about the whale's puberty. There's a spike in testosterone. And at the same time, there's also a spike in stress hormones. And so the researchers have speculated that the whale was undergoing some sort of teen angst, you know, the stress from uh, reaching sexual maturity and perhaps uh, sexual competition with other males. So a moody blue whale. What, what sorts of other information could they find from this? Ear, could they pull out from this earwax? The really interesting thing was the uh, all the persistent organic pollutants. They found 
16 uh, different pollutants, including pesticides and flame retardants. And some of these pollutants were outlawed years ago. There was, for example, a, a flame retardant that was outlawed in 2005. And yet these chemicals stay in the environment for decades and they accumulate, especially in large animals, just like we, everyone knows about mercury accumulating in, in, in tuna, for example. But the interesting thing here is that you can date the exposure, which you can't do uh, with previous methods. And how might conservationists and other scientists, how will they use this time data? It's really the early stages. The researchers have only examined one uh, sample, one cone of earwax from one whale. And so what they'll have to do is they'll have to uh, look for patterns. They'll have to examine many of them and see, uh, for example, if they can distinguish the biology of the whale from uh, environmental exposure, such as in you know a, a near collision with a ship, that could something be something that you can see in the stress levels. Okay, going from a big animal to the Big Bang. Yes, another really exciting article we had this week was about a new, very speculative idea that the entire universe might have been spawned by the formation of a black hole in hyperspace. So we're talking about the possibility that our universe might be just a slice of a larger reality, just like a two-dimensional surface would be a slice of a three-dimensional reality. Our universe could be a three-dimensional slice of a four-dimensional reality. So these cosmologists in Canada have come up with the idea that as the outer layers of a four-dimensional star explode, they, as they, as they um, are thrown out into space, they could form a three-dimensional universe. This would be an expanding three-dimensional object in a four-dimensional universe. And we wouldn't be able to see the additional dimension in which we are expanding. We, in our puny three-dimensional universe, we would detect that expansion as the expansion of our universe. My mind is boggled. So what you're saying is that if this theory were to be true, we are a universe within a universe. Exactly. Right. So presumably this then dismisses the Big Bang theory. It does because it's not a kind of um, creation instant when something appears out of nowhere or out of no uh, nothingness. It would be a universe that is spawned by a pre-existing star in a pre-existing universe. Uh, at the same time, it also would solve the problem, which is that this uh, initial instant of creation is something that would not be easy to explain with the current laws of physics that we know. Why have we not heard about this idea before? People have thought of our universe possibly being, being formed inside a black hole. I mean, no, nobody knows what happens inside a black hole when it forms. There's this point called the singularity at the center of it, which becomes, in principle, infinitely dense and infinitely curved. But some researchers have speculated that basically the matter that falls into the black hole could detach from our reality and form a separate universe. And, and that perhaps our universe formed that way as something that 
spawned from a black hole in a pre-existing universe. Okay, thanks, Davide. Remember, you can read both of those stories and more at nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Tune in next time when we'll be visiting a freezer full of endangered species and marvelling at a new carbon nanotube computer. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 